you for tuning into the weekly episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Steve Giblin. Steve is a retired and decorated U.S. Navy SEAL Master Chief with 28 years of military service and nine years of DOD civilian service in the special operations community. Since his retirement, Steve wrote Walking in Mud, a Navy SEAL's 10 rules for surviving the new normal, where he reflects on the mindset necessary to navigate a post-COVID world. We cover many topics in this episode, including BUDS, the grit and grind of Hell Week, overseas deployment, the challenges of returning to civilian life, the reception of military personnel in public, post-traumatic stress syndrome, mental health, coping with loss, and the mindset of the underwater demolition man. If you or someone you know is struggling emotionally, please view the show notes where you will find useful resources for both veterans and non-veterans alike. Knowing there is a support system that loves and cares for you can be an X factor in finding that balance once again. Nobody should have to navigate these mental traumas alone, and as you'll find in this episode, there's avenues to help you along the way. A quick note that if you enjoy this podcast, please take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. These reviews help this show get discovered, and they allow me to continually bring on amazing guests. Without further ado, Steve Giblin. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule, joining me here on the podcast. Like I've, I've said in the emails, I've been really looking forward to this conversation, but I'd like to start first and foremost for saying thank you for your service. I'm sure you've heard that a trillion times in your life, but it really does mean a lot to me and I'm sure to listeners that we get to wake up every day and go about our lives and there are superheroes like yourself protecting on some level, no matter what you think, our way of life. So I really do appreciate that. I appreciate your time, your 28 years. So thank you for being here. Abe, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. As we do on here, we're just going to jump right into this. And I'm going to start with uh, a quote from your book that it's, it's so in line with my vein of thinking. And I just really liked this when it jumped off the page of me. So We'll start with this, and, and I'd love to just hear your thoughts on how you arrived at this mindset and what role that's played through PTSD, through your retirement, and really life after service. And the quote is, the point of all this therapy is now you see your demons coming and you say, good morning, how the fuck are you? How did you become embodying that mindset with such traumatic elements? It, it was a long process coming. Um, what I was in, uh, gosh, from, I would say 2009, when I had the episode with the high school kid in the street mm -hmm. and I smashed his window, uh, yeah. through my retirement and into my early years of just staying hectic, staying, you know, trying focused on, on work and not realizing that this thing was looming over me. And was actually, you know, like one of these big dark monsters coming up from behind you. And um, when it finally did hit full fledge, that's when I, I realized I had to take a step back and uh, and look at this thing that was that was getting its grip on me. And really, the 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 catalyst that made me understand it all was my wife, and she was on the outside looking in. And when you're experiencing experiencing uh, some of these 
what I'll call episodes of, uh, you know, what I experience, not panic, but just things going, you know, kind of hectic or, uh, like I say, going into a dark place and you, you're, you're not the same person that you normally, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm Mr. You know, cognitive and, uh, you know, I understand exactly what's going on situationally aware and present. You're not a hundred percent present. You're not a hundred percent situationally aware of what's going on with you. And that's why it's important to, um, seek out, get the therapy when you do get back into that present mode and that situational awareness and that self-awareness and being able to understand that if you don't get the help, you're going to spiral out of control quicker, faster than anybody, you know, could ever see. And a lot of times pride gets in the way of seeking that help. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. If you enjoy this podcast and the guests that I have on, you can support it by checking out my amazing sponsor, Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens because I've always been a firm believer that health starts on the cellular level. From my competitive years as an athlete to my weekly output of jiu-jitsu, surfing, and strength training, cellular nutrition is a non-negotiable since I need every leg up I can manage. That's why I won't skip on ingredients or quality when I start my day with pure AG1. Plus, AG1 contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, and it honestly tastes good, while all costing less than $3 a day. Look, if you put in the work, you need to reward your body. So, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Abe. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash A-B-E to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. If we look, if we, if I just think about it from an outstander or outsider looking in at the psychological development that you have to go through, through buds, for example, right? It's designed to weed people out. It's designed to build Steve into this juggernaut that's capable of shelving emotions in the moment and right. operating and achieving a goal. So you do this for however long you're, you're in service and you become very effective at utilizing that mindset to your advantage, to your team's advantage, to the tactical situation yeah. advantage. Right. Facing your emotions is the opposite of that, right? Because now you're 100%. actually trying to notice and react to, in the example that you used with this incident with, with the high schooler, everything about who you have become is to just walk straight through that, right? Oh, absolutely. And now you're actually having to acknowledge it in the moment. Do you feel like maybe that's why PTSD does go unchecked? Yes, I do. Um, especially with certain... Um, certain types of personalities, you know, we've got the, the triple A's, the alphas, and, um, mm -hmm. then there's the extreme alphas and we've got, uh, you know, I've got teammates. I just had lunch with a, with a teammate yesterday, uh, four combat deployments, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, and the things that we were talking about, even though we're several generations apart, matter of fact, he went through buds the year that I retired. So that, you know, that distance, that generational gap between us is very large, but it was a very similar conversation that I've had with teammates that I worked with that, uh, that have 
they were junior to me, but they've gone through all these combat deployments as well. And we are all cut from the same cloth and starting from buds, uh, we experience what they, you know, what's called stress inoculation. And if you fail at stress inoculation, you quit. If you pass, you keep on moving on to the next step, the next day, the next moment, the next hour. And it's just these series of gates that you continue to complete that it's, and by the time all is said and done in the blink of an eye, 28 years is over. And we're very good at training, you know, the war machines, right? Who are the human beings that operate all of our war weaponry, whether you're a pilot, a submariner, uh, an infantry grunt, or special operations, we've been built and we've been trained to do these things that only you know less than 1% of the population will do. And then they go ahead and retire you or you know, you're done with your, your term or you don't retire, but you just get out. Now what? Right? And it's a lot of times it is up to the individual to seek that help to um, almost self-diagnose in a way. Um, but now they've, they've got better programs now that, you know, for transition, uh, mostly transitioning, you know, transition for me when I retired was, hey, make sure that your resumes are updated, make sure that you're, you know, registered with, you know, TRICARE and all these different things, right? But that was it. Nobody talked about, you know, psychological and um, and even physical because the psychological will also it ties in directly with the physical when you start to fall apart you know when the wheels start coming off the wagon if you will um you know i am nowhere near the the physically the human being that i used to be when i was in my you know early 20s or even my late 20s um and so that plays that plays against you as well physically and also ties into the ptsd how how do you grapple with that because if i'm reflecting on again this development of of morphing you into this highly capable situationally aware elite soldier in the seal i mean and like it, you know you just don't get more specialized as far as i'm aware when you start to feel yourself physically distanced from your previous capabilities what does that feel like you go through a series of emotions and the the first thing is understanding that you're never going to be what you were in your 20s and 30s uh quite honestly i think i hit my peak physically and operationally probably when i was 30 31 and um, even though i went through buds when i was 19 i was still learning i still had another you know 11 12 years of maturing within my specialty uh, within my field and, you know, taking that look back and going, wow, what I used to do, what I used to be able to do. My wife and I do that all the time. You know, Hey, remember when we used to run, you know, now we can't even run. Both of us, we have bad knees. I got bone on bone and, uh, you know, I'm looking at double knee replacement, things like that. You have to learn how to take a step back, look at yourself and say, you know what? Okay. I'm not doing that bad. And as long as I keep on trying every day and adjusting your workouts, you know, and going out and doing something physical every day is important to your mental health. 
Um, you know, I start off the day in the morning yeah. taking my dog for a two mile walk. And it's like, gee, what an old person thing to do. Walk your dog for two miles. If you make it at a pace that actually gets your heart rate up, it's a great way to start your morning. And then every other day I go to the gym and I do resistance training, which is just another great way to energize the body, keep it, you know, your metabolism at where you need to keep it at for your age that you're at. An age-appropriate workout, I guess, is what I'm really well, saying is. It, that takes advantage of, there's a compounding effect there, too, because if you're doing two miles a day, that's 12, there's 14 miles a week, right? Then mm -hmm. you do your, the resistance training sessions, that compounds, and then at the end of the month, you're at 56 miles that you walk, and then you do that all year, and, and something that seems geriatric in nature actually is the X factor in maintaining your health, and not to mention the mental clarity that activity gives you. When you, absolutely, you don't have to be going through buds every single day the rest of your life to be healthy, but you can do something yeah. that's minimally invasive, consistent, that you do when you're happy, you do when you're sad, you do when you want to doc walk your dog, you do it when you don't want to walk your dog. And that compounds for your health. And I, I think that's a hard thing for, a lot of people aren't running the math on how much just a little bit done consistently can have a huge payout physically and mentally. Absolutely, you nailed it, you nailed it. Um, you know, and looking at, so, you know, even something that I, I try to emphasize now with my grandchildren is, um, you learn one thing every day, one thing new every day. You learn something every day. Think about how much you've learned at the end of the year. So if you also do like what you just said physically and you add up all that miles walked, time spent working out, you know, because, you know, medical surveys now at, at the age that I'm at, you know, the doctor's always you know, on this questionnaire how many hours a week do you get, you know, do you do physical activity, you know, and then you're sitting there, you're dividing it all up and you're like, wow, you know, quite honestly, I'm doing, you know, seven and a half, eight hours of physical activity a week. Um, right. Not too bad. When I was in my thirties, forties and early fifties, you know, like you said, you know, just a minute ago, you, you know, I was trying to go through buds every day. I was going right. out and doing some physically difficult things to continually push my body, but it was, because of ego. It was, yes. man, I used to do this stuff 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. This was who I was, you know, all that time. I think it also depends on how an individual was raised uh, prior to entering something like, you know, boot camp buds and then a career of that. Um, I was raised in a very, you know, my father put an emphasis on working out on exercise and building that base of, you know, who we were individually. So I think that's, that's critical. It's so important. And I, I'm, I'm hesitant to jump around too much because it's, you're so on the money. And, and I really, I do want to unpack that experience, the psychological break when it actually happened, like the, the feelings around that and everything. So we're going to return back to that absolutely in a couple of minutes, but while we're on the topic of fitness, I've always been, as a, an athlete and then a, a trainer in my career, I've always been curious about buds as a, a week regarding mental and physical demands. Because, well, actually, instead of me saying what I think, I'm very curious. When you went into that week, where was you your physical about, or Are you talking about how we? 
You talking about Hell Week? Hell Week, yep. When you went? Okay. Yep. Where was your mental and physical preparation at? And then at the end of that, where was your mental and physical preparation at? Or gas tanks, rather. So, uh, you know, the leading up to Hell Week, um, the, the training cadre actually do an incredible job of getting you prepared and up to that point. When I was talking about stress inoculation, believe me, the first several weeks leading up to Hell Week are a series of Hell Weeks, Hell Days that then lead up to that one week where you've got now, really what they incorporate is incorporate in is the sleep deprivation. You've already right. been physically trained and also physically broken down. By the time you hit Hell Week, that's your last stretch. That's, that's the last couple of miles of a marathon. And then when you finish Hell Week, your body is just, I mean, your muscles, the, I, to explain the soreness of it would probably be, you know, if you were to talk to an ultra marathoner and ask them how they're done after a, after a, you know, a century run. Right. Um, right. And the, just the, I mean, you, I never believed that my, that my body could feel so sore at the end of that week. All the other weeks leading up to it were just as physically demanding, but then you were done by, you know, five, six o'clock at night. And then you wash off all your gear, get ready for the next day. And then you rack out, you know, for, you know, you get your eight or nine hours of sleep that night. And then you start the next day, 5 a.m. Hell week. It's just this continuing day. And it's a, it's a continuous physical evolution nonstop until you sit down and eat one of four meals a day and boom, you're back at it again. And then come Thursday, you get your first two hours of sleep. And I believe it's Thursday, maybe Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, first two hours, of, you know, two hours of sleep. And then Thursday afternoon, you get another two hours of sleep. And we would, we would wake up from that two hours and be like, oh my God, how long were we out? God, it felt like five hours. And it was only actually two hours, but you were just so zonked out that, um, you know, it, it, you know, but that's, and they, they built that into the program in order to just re-energize the batteries just enough to get you through to the next day, because the human body could only go so long without sleep, especially right. when you're doing the physical activity that we were doing log PT obstacle course, boats on heads, paddling the boats. Uh, we would go on a, a four mile, you know, paddling of the boats, come into the beach. And then they tell us you got a two mile time run or a four mile time run you have to do. And we would do the four mile time run. And then they would tell us, get your fins and your UDT life jacket. You're going to go do a two mile swim now, you know? So it's just continuous, continuous, just continuous. That, that fitness gruel just seems so it, it purposefully so cruel because I think as any individual who's exercised in your life, it's very easy to tie goals around things where it's, I'm going to run three days a week. I want to get my mile time to, you know, seven and a half minutes. I want to bench press X, Y, Z. That structure is designed to never allow your brain psychologically to establish an achievable goal. So you are just pulled through this grinder. That's exactly what that it you, is. There's nothing, there can't be anything that compares to the, of course, the, the bodily pain, I would imagine, 
is very present in the beginning because it, it's tough, right? It's if you, yeah. if someone says do two hundred pushups and you get to sixty, it your body can't you know you can't do more. But if they make you do more, all you're doing is forcing yourself through a physical threshold of pain. But the mental right. destruction of knowing that you're never going to hit the whatever and the goalpost just keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed. Would you say that, the, I mean, between the physical pain and the mental angst, <laughs> how does this balance, how does the scale change throughout that, through the sleep deprivation, through the nonstop physical work, through the just not being dry? Like, how wet does and that sandy. scale change? Wet and, sandy, wet and sandy is just a, that's a part of going through buds. And you've got sand in every crevice of your body for probably months. Um, I think I was still washing it out when I went to jump school, right? Um, but the, the physical aspect of it and the mental tying in the two, starting Sunday night with breakout, that is the beginning of probably the most um, mental toughness. We've already, you know, and what a lot of guys, what a lot of the students really didn't understand was, you've already done all this stuff. Now all we're doing is we're stacking it all evolution after evolution after evolution. So you are, believe it or not, already prepared for this. And wow. But the but the Sunday night breakout, what we call it, uh, you know, the the kickoff of you know that week long Super Bowl that you're in, that is a you know, a lot of guys just aren't prepared for that. Um and then you the next 48 hours is extremely mental because that's when guys self-defeat. They, you know, man, I right. just can't do another, I can't take another step or I can't, I don't want to get back into the cold water again. And the, you know, I watched a guy, we had a, uh, when I was, when I was on my very last tour, I was at the center. And one of my jobs when I was the operations master chief was to observe Hell Week and kind of be in the CEO's eyes and ears for you know the evolutions and and key evolutions and i was always there for breakout and one at one point the students had actually somehow probably from a rollback that was working in the first phase office a student rollback uh they got a copy of the hell week schedule and gave it to his classmates that's a, that's that a mental get... exercise in itself <laughs> right well so then looking at you know and the guy's gone okay, at this time, because we had the, you know, everything was broken down by hours, right? And I mean, all the way down, that entire week is scheduled hour by hour by hour. And the, the training cadre found out that the class had the schedule and they were waiting for the loud booms, bangs, blank machine gun fire, just chaos to break out, smoke grenades, low crawling through the grinder, you know, in the middle of the compound. And what the uh, the master chief in charge of first phase did, Chris, the guy was a monster of a guy. I mean, we're talking, you know, <laughs> these massive arms. He, you know, this guy can make a student just break down and cry, you know, just by looking at him, you know. And uh, what Chris did was he said, all right, they know, but we're going to flip it on them. We're going to start Hell Week one hour early, and we're going to go into the tent, gently wake up all the students. No, no yelling, no flashbangs, no smoke, no machine guns. And we're going to tell them, 
get all your gear, get boats on heads, and then we march them. They they marched them down to uh, the demo pit on the Silver Strand, and yeah. they actually had a kid quit while they're walking with the boats on heads down to the demo pit. And because this kid was wow. so freaked out and this was so unplanned, he couldn't deal with it. Yeah. And I'm walking at the back of all of this. And all of a sudden I see this kid peel out of it and he wants to ring the bell, you know, and I'm just, I'm looking at the other cadre and they're just laughing. They're like, Oh my God, <laughs> we really, we mind fucked these guys, you know? Yeah. And from that point on, they kept them off balance for the entire week. So they memorized that entire week, hour by hour, or familiarized themselves with what was going on. And they just switched it around. And they had like several different schedules and, you know, an A, B, C, and D schedule. And they're like, all right, they know what A schedule is. Let's go to C schedule. And that's what they did. Pulled C schedule right out of the playbook. And these guys were, you know, so Hell Week continued on. And... These guys were just, you know, and so I guess the lesson in all of this is that, you know, that's like trying to predict what's going to happen in a combat scenario or in war, right? We're going to, we're going to land on the X, we're going to attack the yeah. target and everything has to go as planned, you know, and, and we don't have any flexibility built into us. And then all of a sudden when things go sideways, everybody's just caught off guard and then they get, you know, they get their ass handed to them. Yeah. So it's that that's one of the things, right? And that's one of the things that all all of the special operations units, not just you know, not just the SEAL teams, but the the Marine Raiders, Army Army Soft, uh, you know, the SF uh, uh, Q School, and PJs and CCT. These guys all go through very very similar blocks of training, and all it really is again is just you know, hey, push through it mentally adapt every hour, every minute. And right. don't worry about the pain. The pain will leave your body. You know, mentally just push through all of these evolutions and you'll be all right. It's, it's crazy how hard that concept is. Like you and I can sit here and we can talk about this idea of recognizing pain bef either before it's present or while it's present, it, which is very, you know, common in fitness. If you're trying to get through a tough, training session, you, you're going to hit that point where your muscles are tired, you don't want to do another rep, you're out of breath, and you can kind of coach yourself in that setting through this, going, this is temporary, it's going to leave me. Uh, but again, it's because you can prepare your brain for the idea that you know when it's going to end and you're in control of the end. You could also just stop right. and no one's going to be upset with you. No one's going to be disappointed. You're not going to be repositioned. It's just you're always in control and there's a lot of comfort in that. Yeah, I, I have always wondered, so it, if we go back to this instance where you guys are boats on heads and you see this kid quit, as you go through this week, how many, um, how many total SEALs were in your, or, or individuals were in your starting class and how many people actually graduated BUDS alongside you? My class, so uh, back in the, the time when I went through BUDS, your typical buds class could be, you know, a hundred students, uh, because guys just quit leading up to even first phase or, you know, or the beginning of first phase, the very first week of first phase. And by the time you go through hell week, you might be down to a hundred students. My class started with 130 and we graduated. We finished hell week with 24. 
So that attrition rate, you know, and guys just peeling off, peeling off, peeling off. And even leading up to Hell Week, you get guys quitting all throughout those three weeks leading up to Hell Week because it's the, um, you know, the 5 a.m. ocean swim when that marine layer is sitting on top of you and all you could see is the first hundred yards of the ocean and you're standing there in the chill of the morning waiting for the instructors to come along and inspect you. And you're standing, you're not like hanging out and just chilling out. Right. You're standing at attention with your, you know, a CO2 cartridge and a mask in one hand and your knife in the other hand and with your fins at your feet and standing there waiting to be inspected. And you're not talking, you're in a straight line and the instructors will then show up and do their inspection, their swimmer inspection. And then you have to go out into the water, the 55 degree water and swim out to the start line hang out in a hang out in a swimming pod and then you're paired up with your buddy and they give you the go and you start swimming i had a guy in my buds class that just quit because he couldn't stand standing there and that anticipation of getting into the cold water couldn't do it so when and he's like when you see done uh comrades beside you you start with these guys you're watching them quit I've always wondered, is the quitting uh, energizing for you? No. Actually, seeing somebody quit, um, especially like the guy right next to you, you know, or your, even your swim buddy, um, you know, you want that class to hang together. It's, it's the class versus the instructors. And yeah. the instructors, they really don't, you know, the verbal piece of it, you know, the, the chatter, and uh, the, you know, the talking you down and the, you know, all we need is one quitter, one quitter and everybody can get out of the water, you know. And, uh, you know, sometimes the class will say, come on, you know, somebody just quit. <laughs> or or in, in a, some cases, it's like, you know, the students just rally around each other and refuse to quit and they stay in the water. But what they don't know is or what they won't understand is there's a timeline to how long they're going to stay in the water. Right. And they're going to get pulled out at some point. You have to wrap your brain around the fact that the evolution is going to stop. But you're just going to go on to another evolution. So after you're done laying in the surf zone for 15 minutes, you're going to get out of the surf zone. And their boat's on head again. And now you're going to go to the obstacle course. And you get to the obstacle course. And then the instructor that's there tells you, okay, by boat crew, you guys are going to take your boat your paddles, and you're going to go up and down the obstacles. You're going to take your boat and your paddles and everything with you through the obstacle course. And so there's another challenge that just seems so like just ridiculously difficult. And there's certain obstacles that they won't tell you, you know, like the, the cargo net, you're not going to haul your boat up the cargo net. So there's certain obstacles that are just eliminated from it. But again, it's just another physically demanding evolution that will just sap the energy out of you. And typically guys won't quit during that evolution. It's the, it's the cold and wet evolutions that guys will quit. Yeah. Um, it's sunset. <laughs> Watching the sun go down and knowing that you're in for the next stretch of hours until sunrise where now it's dark, cold and wet and the temperature is just gonna go down. It's not gonna, you're not gonna find any point in time where you're gonna get warm. So what are, what are you doing in your head or not doing when you're standing there, guys are quitting next to you. If for some reason you're not, 
what is it, if you can recall, what does that feel like? What are you doing in your brain? What are you telling yourself? Sometimes to get you when to you, the next thing. Well, so sometimes you'll see like a guy that everybody looked up to in the class. Man, he's physically strong. He's he's mentally tough. This guy's a beast. And then all of a sudden he quits. And everybody's just like, oh, holy crap. And at first it's shock. And then it's, okay, we have to get through this because, you know, and then sometimes another guy, his buddy will quit. Well, if he's quitting, I'm going to quit because I'm not going to make it, right. you know, or something like that. I actually had a, uh, what I, what I call my moment of weakness. And it was on um, a Wednesday, late Wednesday afternoon going into, you know, the sun was setting. We were doing an evolution called lions, the lion's lope on the bay. We're standing on the, the grinder by, by what we call uh, Turner Field there at uh, Naval Amphibious Base Coronado. And um, I, I just felt like I had had enough. I had enough. I'm done. And so they called for quitters. Come on over. You know, come see Master Chief Tyson and uh, go ahead. And, you know, if you want to quit, tell Master Chief Tyson you want to quit. I left my boat crew. I started walking away and my boat crew was yelling for me. And they're like, no, no, no. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm done. I'm mentally, yeah. I'm mentally done. And I walked up and uh, this is the same guy that uh, if you recall from the book that had me shine his boots all week long, Yes. had me, yep. had me memorize all the schedules. So this was the same guy. And I had already done all the, the schedule memorization and, you know, read it off to him or verbally sounded off to him. I got up to him after a couple other guys had physically quit. They brought the bell with them and they rang the bell that was on the tailgate of the truck. And it was my turn to quit. And I just looked at Master Chief Tyson and I said, Master Chief, I'm done. I want to quit. And he looked at me and he said, the fuck you are. Get back over there with your boat crew. And I turned right around and went back to my boat crew. I didn't even, I didn't <laughs> argue with him. Right. Um, and that was my physical moment of weakness or my mental moment of weakness that I thought I wanted to quit. And sometimes that's all it takes is for somebody to go, no, you're not done. Support. Um, yeah. And even though it was uh, not the kind of coddling support that, you know, you might get from a yeah. parent or somebody, you know, it was the tough love support. And uh, I mean, that was that was a defining moment for me in Buds and especially Hell Week. So, so you make it through these stages of. And I, again, what I can just imagine are the are the most physically draining experiences of your life. When you, if you have to reflect on those different evolutions, the cold, the wet, the sand, the physical demands that it, I'm thinking about this too from like a the fact that you just can't train for this stuff. Like if someone asks you to haul a boat up and over an obstacle with other people, you can't go to the local gym and prepare yourself to do that. Like that's going to happen because you guys worked together as a team. It's not going to happen because right. you increased your deadlift or because you did longer farmer's carries. It's weird asymmetrical loading and like just everything is wrong about doing that. So it's going to happen because you're, you committed to doing it and the people around you are doing it with you and that's how it gets done. And even if you do it, then they'll give you something else that's even worse that maybe you, you can't get that done. Right. So when you're going through all of these, talk to me a little bit about how the sleep deprivation 
affects you because in in the world of training and some other doctors I've had on the podcast, I just have so much appreciation for sleep. The value it has on our cognition, on our body's ability to repair its tissue, its cells, to do things like learn new movements, learn new languages. It's everything that happens that's good for us <laughs> happens yeah. while we're asleep. Right. What is right. it like to go through that and be deprived of this key element? It's so you earlier, uh, when we first started this conversation, you said it's a grind and that's really what it is. It's just a grind. And you kind of at, at, at one point, you don't make anything of it anymore. You're just waiting to be told yeah. where to go next. And you become almost, uh, you know, a zombie, if you will, of going from one evolution to the next. And gee, what's next around the corner for us? And there actually becomes a point in time where we laugh at each other. You become, <laughs> you just become almost goofy. And uh, I think that point for us was Wednesday night. And we were on a long paddle. We were doing this thing, this evolution called Around the World. And uh, we were literally just, I mean, this evolution that just took us all the way down to the south end of the Silver Strand. We crossed the Silver Strand underneath this, uh, this walkthrough, go to the bay, get back in our boats. And we're paddling across the bay, the calm of the bay. And um, I remember that it was just a crystal clear night. The, the bay was just flat as a sheet of glass. And one of the guys in, the, in my boat crew, he fell asleep while we were paddling boats and he just falls in the water. And we're like, oh, damn, so-and-so just fell in the water. You know, we got to stop and we got to go back and get him, you know. Um, our OIC of our boat crew, who's sitting in the very back, he's the coxswain. He's the guy that's steering and helping paddle and whatnot. He fell out of the boat and we didn't even notice that he had fallen out for probably 100 yards. Wow. And one of the guys turns around to see what's going on, why we're zigzagging, you know. And he goes, oh, my God, Lieutenant fell out of the boat. And we turn around and we paddle it and he's just floating there. He's got his K-Pock on and he's just floating there. And he's just like, I was wondering when you guys would come back and get me, you know? And we just broke out laughing. We were laughing so hard. And, but that was a moment that got us through. And yeah. you have, you're hallucinating. Um, the human body is far more capable of doing extreme things that, that, we as you know the typical humans don't even understand or are aware of um so going for three days or you read these incredible stories about survival you know people in the woods people lost and uh you know some of the most unassuming individuals in the world that got lost and survived for days they found a source of yeah. water they uh, got to a point where they could be rescued and people are like, oh, my God, how did you do it? And I always I look at that story and I'm like, OK, there are plenty of people that, you know, we've done it. And there's plenty of other people out there that can do it. Um, we're just kind of you're not forced to go through Hell Week. It's all volunteer. The entire evolution, everything, everything buds. It's it's a volunteer program. Nobody makes you go to buds. Nobody makes you wake up in the morning and go to that first evolution. You have the option to quit anytime you want. We've had guys that have gone from the barracks to the bell at one o'clock in the morning. They laid there, 
most of the night contemplating their situation and they said, screw it, I'm going to quit in the middle of the night. You have to ring the bell though. And so then the quarter deck watch yeah. shows up. The chief, you know, the staff duty officer who's an instructor shows up and this individual is now written down in the logbook. And he, you know, told to show up the next morning. He can't go back in the barracks to sleep. He's got to now go someplace else to sleep. And they start to out process him. Um, so this all volunteer situation that we found ourselves in going through all week was exactly that. The choice was up to you. Some of these survival stories, the choice was theirs to go out on the hike, but it wasn't their choice to get lost and now find themselves right. in a survival mode. Uh, to me, that's what I find incredible are some of those stories. I would agree with you. I think that humans, just in general, I mean, if you look at, of course, the buds and Navy SEALs are a great example because it's it's such a known physical and mental grinder like we talked about and and you can go watch videos about it and you can you can read about it and you can <laughs> try to vicariously live through that situation have some appreciation but just yeah. look to anywhere in the world i i think about these you know these this soccer team that was in i think thailand that got trapped in the cave right and right they were there for like eight days yeah. I mean, I get a, you know, I have a panic attack, mental breakdown, just thinking about being in there. But in that occasion, whatever they had to mentally do together to stay alive on no food in a cave with no light until randomly the most elite divers in the world for the first time ever navigated this insane crevasse and cave system while pioneering it i mean it wasn't a you know it wasn't a trail that you go hiking on i mean they're, they're figuring right. out as they go get there then realize they have to figure out how to get them out i mean the world is is just riddled with tons of examples of this of the human mind the human spirit overcoming insane obstacles then you look at where we're at on like a physical performance standpoint you got guys like usain bolt running at speeds that oh. just never seemed like they would ever ever happen and now those records yeah. are being broken it it is remarkable what we're capable of in siloed situations this uh, this is a uh it's not funny but it is very much to the exact point that you just said so when i was in high school the varsity soccer team every year they would do this trip to the zirkel wilderness in colorado and they would run as a team up this mountain. It took like three hours, and then everyone stands at the top, and they sign this book, and it's a big like team experience. Two of my good buddies in high school, <laughs> I've, I'm going to be respectful of them, but on the way back down, somehow got sidetracked from the trail and from the team because you spread out in a run. You know, like you just yeah. get distance. Some people run faster. Some run slower. But it's single track. Everyone should know, right. you know the track goes one direction they get 100% search and rescue lost. Team oh can't God. find them. They're gone for a day and a half. They end up being found by search and rescue, and they had huddled up together with one jacket behind this log and made like a little shelter and survived. And if you had talked to these kids prior, they are not the ones that would go and try out for the SEALs. They are not the ones that would sign up for the most grueling, intense thing. They did it because they're a part of the team. It was a team experience. But they did. They did exactly what you were talking about, is they yeah. instantly tapped into this other thing 
that's there and utilized it to literally stay alive and be rescued. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's um, incredible. Sometimes overthinking situations will get you in more trouble than not. Um, so, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I guess what the, the point I'm trying to make, you know, so overthinking can sometimes lead to panic and making bad decisions. Um, staying calm and trying to, and, and using common sense, if you will, to, okay, what do we need to do? Should we try to hike our way out, navigate our way out, or should we stay put and just not go any further, conserve energy, conserve, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we have. And so a lot of times when you hear about people that have died in the wilderness, it's because they've just hiked all around and trying to find their own way out and get into a panic situation, uh, sleep deprivation, and you start making very bad decisions. And then next thing you know, they're just never found again. Uh, they've gotten themselves into an impossible situation that they now cannot get out of. And the, the downward spiral of bad decision-making just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. You know, um, when, when you're in a, in the in the buds setting it again from an outsider looking in on this i can just kind of imagine that in combat right if you're engaged in combat the threat of death is super real because it, mm -hmm. it can happen at, at any time in buds the threat of of death is there physiologically from what you're doing right like if you sustain long duration in 55 degree weather you can get hypothermia you can die if you are submerged underwater and you pass out and you're unable to resuscitate, you can pass away. So there's elements of mortality through kind of baked in. The difference is that to whatever degree you do feel like they are or not, there are people there watching to make sure that this line isn't crossed. Yeah. When you're going through that experience, you're watching people probably quit because of that, fear for their own life, fear for their, their own wellness. Do you are you thinking about that aspect at all of like how much can I trust these guys that are overseeing this? Um, and I think that's up to you know up to every individual. I trusted the instructors. I had I had just mountain loads of respect for the instructors, knowing that they had all gone through the same program, whether it was five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years before me. Um, that they, they had had the same experience. Uh, I think that's one of the uh, great attributes of the SEAL teams and the, the precursor, the underwater demolition teams, and then naval combat demolition units prior to that. Hell Week has been a staple of that training since the very first class of naval combat demolitioneers that went through training in Fort Pierce, Florida. Uh, they devised Hell Week to do to to try to replicate as closely as they can combat scenario and have these have everybody endure it and uh, so knowing that the cadre had gone through it themselves knowing what markers to look for that were dangerous and being able to put a stop to an evolution or pull a student out that they notice is not acting or behaving in a way that's you know uh, normal. Normal for normal for Hell Week, right? Right. right. So, um, for me, you know, I was 19 years old, and 
I don't know, I guess it just really paid off well to be dumb and just to, you know, uh, yeah, I'll do that. You know, uh, what the hell? I'll go ahead and do it. And, uh, you know, let's see how far I could get. And besides that moment that I had where I wanted to quit or I thought I wanted to quit, I never had an idea of quitting again in anything that I did. Um, I, you know, obviously I almost got, you know, booted from the island for, you know, taking a little nap during a recon. But um, again, you know, contextually, we had been, uh, you know, physically, they, you know, running us, doing all kinds of evolution. So it wasn't like that recon was the only evolution we had that day. And I was tired, you know, and all of a sudden you patrol in and you're supposed to be watching this target that's nobody's going to be shooting at you. There isn't any threat out there. The only real threat that I had that I didn't recocognize was the fact of falling asleep and an instructor catching me, you know, dozed, <laughs> dozed off. Right. Right. So now I was faced with, you know, being booted off the island. And um, I actually was talking to a classmate of mine. I, I try to stay in touch with as many classmates as I can. And a really good friend of mine whom uh, he and I uh, were, we were at six together. We were actually shooting partners in the same assault troop and everything. Uh, but now we, you know, we always, we catch up. We either talk or whenever I go to San Diego, I see him. And um, we reflect back on a lot of these evolutions that we went through together in buds. And, uh, you know, in all honesty, that's probably one of the funniest evolutions or situations, I should say, that the entire class experienced was me, you know, getting shit canned or what everybody thought was going to, you know, me getting shit canned when in reality it was a Sunday and, you know, nobody gets shit canned on a Sunday, I guess, out on the island. <laughs> right. But um, I'm sure that must be that must be a really special thing to be able to share that uh, when you go through the gauntlet in anything i mean there's varying degrees of that right but uh, i mean this is such a different example but doing a i had the chance to do a crossfit workout with my dad recently and there's something about shared effort that is really unique when you're able to put i think because physical exertion changes you physiologically when you go through that change with someone else that you know or someone else that you can reflect on it later, it's a very powerful thing to happen. I, I can only imagine that that time that you shared with these other 25 people, I mean, it's for life. Absolutely it is. And one of the things that I tried to emphasize when uh, when I was at Bud's or – so I, I participated in a, uh, you know, kind of an experiment, if you will, a mentor program, which now they've they've implemented uh, full scale was, you know, is a seasoned old guy who is a mentor and can listen to the students and their concerns, their thoughts, things like that. It's not touchy feely. It is, you know, taking on board and then explaining the, you know, the whys, you know, why why you're going through this kind of thing. And um, but one of the things that I, I had asked this one particular buds class, they were now down to probably 50 students and they were in second phase going through the dive phase. And, um, you know, they were they were trying to talk to me about a particular student who was sitting right there in the room, but talking about, you know, kind of in the in the greater 
expanse of things that, you know, teamwork and, uh, you know, knowing the guy on your left and on your right. And I said, well, how many of you guys really know the guy on your left and on your right? And, uh, you know, I said, you know, look at, look at the guy on your left and the guy on your right. Do you know his middle name? Do you know where he's from? Do you know what he did before he came to Bud's? And in my Bud's class, we did. We knew these, uh, you know, these intricacies of every individual that I still remember to this day. Um, you know, their hometown that they were from. This one guy in particular uh, worked for Anheuser-Busch delivering, he drove a beer truck for Budweiser. And if you work for Anheuser-Busch, you have to memorize this, you know, this motto that's written on the front of the Budweiser can. In the middle of Hell Week, they, you know, we, they had us circled around, you know, at, in the mud flats. And they told each student, you know, to step forward and say something special about yourself or what you think is special. And this was on Wednesday night and uh, or Thursday night, I think. And this guy talked specifically about that. And I, I remember it to this day. You know, and I, you know, I remember the guy's name and I've, I've actually interacted with the guy over the last several decades. And uh, we, you know, we've run into each other every now and then when I was still in San Diego. So these are these things, these shared experiences, like you said, um, and then even combat experiences. And I think combat experiences, especially the guys over the last 20 years uh, with Iraq and Afghanistan and Africa, they have really formed these bonds that uh, you will never break. You will never break them. Yeah. Uh, combat has that way of doing it. And it's proven itself just time and time again. World War II buddies that, you know, I mean, these guys going to Normandy together and, you know, walking the beach and reflecting on that, you know, that day coming across that beach. Um, you know, that that is something that even your your spouse can't really grasp. Right. Right. Yeah, they can't um, empathize for that at all. No, and it's and it's not it's not a uh, it's not a dink on you know a spouse not knowing you uh, as well as you know some you know well she should know him better than that. That's not even close to it. Uh, that shared experience of you know maybe even a near death variance being shot at or you know having other things you know you know artillery being fired at you from a, you know, from a cliff onto the beachhead, things like that. Uh, or, you know, in my case being, you know, in an SDV with teammates, you know, one other guy and you're just doing these things in an SDV that you never thought possible that you could do. I, I still talk to Max, who is my dive buddy on my FTX dive in San Diego right. Bay. I talked to him just a couple of months ago and it's as though, it's as though we talk every day, you know, we, you know, we catch up, we, you know, we laugh about things and, you know, these shared experiences. Um, it's, it's a bond. I'll tell that... you after, after reading that portion of the book um, about that last dive that you guys did together and, and how you performed and the hurdles that you came up against while performing it, I'll never look at San Diego Bay the same. Like when I drive over, because I'm in uh, in Encinitas, when I drive over the bridge to Coronado, I look down and I'm like, man, I just picture Steve and his partner on this submersible way down there navigating this underwater course, doing all these things for for hours. I think it was, what, three and a half or four hours at night, well, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I mean, that's, yeah, that's just, you can't, it, it's kind of, it makes me think of, uh, you know, friends that you've known for 20 years or something like to meet another person and build that type of relationship, you have to know them for 20 years. There's just not, there's no shortcut to that type of, um, no. relationship building, you know, and, and then you, you put your guys in a pressure cooker of combat with, mortality kind of always facing you and i can only imagine that it, it pressure cooks it right and it, it solidifies those even more because now you are equally responsible for the well-being of every other person in your team and i think that's why something like buds makes so much sense to me on what you're trying to produce is this elite level operative that's capable of performing in absolutely insane amounts of pressure to make decisions under pressure and to trust their decision making and those around them so you kind of want them to go through this gauntlet you, you don't want it yeah. to be a written exam <laughs> you know right you can't, like, right you know you don't want some guy that took the correspondence 70. course yeah you know he took the correspondence right. course he stood in a cold wet shower for five minutes you know and uh, yeah right. no no not at Do all you, you don't you can't actually on on that point, do you laugh at all the cold exposure stuff that's just on, on social media and online and with like There's, ice baths and everything? Are you kind of like, ha ha, this is hilarious? Uh, you know what? I see the value in it. And I've actually, um, yeah. there's some team guys that, uh, that I know have done it. And, uh, you know, they've, they've done it for various amounts of reasons. And some of them have actually done it to, uh, you know, to work on their own personal therapy for the PTSD. And, um, yeah. And it's a, uh, it, again, it's pushing, pushing the, the limits of your body. And of course, most team guys, yeah. if you were just to capture a log of all the guys that do the cold, you know, immersion, you know, the, you know, the ice tub immersion thing, they're probably talking about how long they lasted. You know, oh, I I was in there 45 <laughs> seconds longer than you were. You know, everything's a competition. Right. Um, I personally haven't done it. Um, I probably should try to do it at least once. But um, I think the thing that I, you know, uh, I've, I've actually had some, some young people that were, uh, you know, contemplating going to BUDS ask me if uh, I thought that they should go through one of these civilian uh, programs that tries to replicate, you know, buds to a degree. Yeah. 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 And they, they even try to replicate hell week. And I'm, and I ask them, I said, well, I said, if you want, you can just come to my place. I'll kick you in the nuts. And then yeah. we'll, uh, you know, then we'll, then we'll, once you recover from that, we'll have lunch or whatever. And then I'll kick you in the nuts again and see if that's yeah. what you really want, you know, and, or I'll ask you if you want me I, to kick you in the nuts again. That's really what you're asking for is a double kick in the nuts. So why not just I go ahead like and you know, let it go? Also, from again, I'll always preface with from someone who has not ever gone through it. I can only imagine that if you, if you're a somebody who's wondering, asking someone who's 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 been through it all, if you should go do a practice course, already already psychologically, what you're trying to do is raise your floor of discomfort so that you're ready to go through this thing when there again the reality is you cannot prepare for it because whatever no. you think that you're going to do whatever 
whatever level you think you need to bring yourself to so that now you're prepared, you're not. No. You won't be. Because no. they'll give you the schedule and they'll turn it upside down. Absolutely. You know, like, and I think that in, in the design of it, it's what I've always admired. It's truly chaotic. There's it no, is. you know, I've watched it's controlled chaos. at this time. Yes. I've watched so many videos online at this point in my life of, you know, maybe in my, in a different life, I, 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 I fantasized <laughs> about being a Navy SEAL and I've watched so many of these videos and I always get surprised by the people that ring the bell because yeah. when I think about it, I think it's going to be the weak guy, the small guy, the skinny guy, the guy who doesn't really look like he belongs. And I've been shown so many times that it's not that guy. A lot of the times, it's the big guy. It's the super strong guy. It's the person yeah. that has done a bunch of races and a bunch of this. And they, they expected that the physical preparation would pull them through to the end. Yeah. And it, it's a curse. In some cases. In some cases. Uh, we had a kid that, um, so I was working the day shift of Hell Week, and um, there was a guy who the cadre had just completely bet against him making it through Hell Week. I mean, it was, you know, they were like, man, so-and-so, he is not going to make it. Any any guesses on what day he's going to quit? And this kid, <laughs> this betting. kid, yeah, this kid was skinny. He was not a physical specimen. He was, um, I, I'm not going to say marginal performer. He was a middle of the pack performer physically on just about every evolution. And, um, but he was quiet and he was a lot like, uh, you know, I, I described Max in my, in my buds class, who was the ultimate gray man. And, uh, I mean, instructors yeah. seriously thought that he just like, he was a rollback or something. I don't know. And, and they were even right. like, they looked at him physically and they're like, what are you doing here? Max ended up serving 30 years, you know? Um, and then, uh, you know, and he had done, you know, I can't even tell you how many deployments Max had done, but back to this kid. So I observed, you know, I, I kept a, I, I kept an eye on everybody. I watched everybody during the, during the day shift, it was easy um, to, to see everybody and to watch them, but specifically this kid and something had happened he had he had sustained a stress fracture uh, in one of his uh, you know, like tibia fibia uh, region there uh, during Hell Week, but he never said anything to anybody, even during the med checks, the medical checks that they would get every afternoon, right, or scheduled. Sometimes they were in the morning, and uh, but never said anything to anybody until Friday afternoon when Hell Week was secured, and they did their med checks, and you know, hey, is anything bothering you? Yeah, my right leg, my lower right leg is just killing me. They x-rayed him, and he had a fracture. And uh, wow. this kid finished, he finished Hell Week with a broken leg. And so not only did that, did just the mere fact of him finishing Hell Week, did that, you know, surprise the instructors, but the fact that he finished Hell Week with a broken leg. And it's like, wow, what internal mental strength is that? to be able to do that. Um, you know, and I, I actually ran into the guy probably two years later, uh, out on the East coast and we just did some quick catching up. He, you know, he hailed me down in the parking lot and just wanted to say hello. 
So I asked him what he's up to, uh, two combat tours, and I was getting ready to go out on his third. And he absolutely loved being in the teams. Um, you know, and it was just, it was, it was good to see. It was really good to see. Uh, good to see that somebody like that just, I mean, just thoroughly enjoyed his experiences and loved being a part of, you know, this thing, you know, that we call being a SEAL. Was it tough for you leaving San Diego? Because I picture, you know, living here, this is the first time that I've, I've lived in San Diego now two years. There's obviously a huge military presence, whether you're in or out of the military. You're just, you're going to come in contact with it somehow, whether I'm surfing at beacons and the helicopters go by or I'm training jujitsu and my teammates there all live on Pendleton and some of them are spec op guys, some of them are MARSOC. It's, you're just, you're going to brush elbows with military living in, down here in San Diego. When you're here, I can imagine the 28 years, the nine years of service after that, a decorated seal, you're kind of, you're in the top of that food chain of community. And when you move, you could be at the supermarket and no one has any idea. Was that a difficult transition? It, it wasn't difficult in the sense that, you know, nobody had any idea of, you know, what I had done or, um, you know, my identity when we had moved to New York, rural New York. Um, we honestly thought that it was going to be good for us. And um, one to of the first things, yourself. yeah. And just to kind of, okay, let's start a new chapter in our life and, uh, you know, retirement. Right. Um, and one of the things that my wife had commented on that she had said, she said, I miss the helicopters because every day we lived on, we lived in Coronado. You would hear helicopters yeah. constantly. Right. And, um, and even seeing a specific plane, a C-17 coming in to land at North Island on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, um, you know, and knowing the schedules of the teams and who was coming home from deployment, we'd be like, oh, there's SEAL Team 1's bird coming in, you know, the first task unit coming home, you know, and uh, we experienced that ourselves. You know, uh, I actually caught a ride with SEAL Team 1 coming home from Iraq and, um, you know, so that was a, that was a great feeling. And when we were there in New York, it was like, wow, it's, it's too quiet. We miss, we miss yeah. certain aspects of being around a base, seeing ships, hearing helicopters, seeing a jet. And, um, yeah. you know, every now and then, so there was a, there was a guard unit that operated out of uh, aviation army guard unit that operated out of uh, Rochester Air, airport and they would fly down to where we were uh, around the Finger Lakes. And so every now and then, man, you'd, you'd hear a CH-47 coming and I could recognize the sound well before you ever see it. And I'm like, wow, and I'm starting right. to look for it. And there it is. And you just get this, <laughs> this great feeling I did anyway, you know, and, um, you know, and I'm thinking to myself then I'm like, geez, what kind of a sick puppy am I that I all of a sudden get this happy, giddy feeling that I see a CH-47. Um, or I mean, even I can a, only imagine you know, for you having having been given you know so much of your life to this that even as purely a civilian when I'm surfing and I would imagine they're like Chinooks or sometimes what look like Apaches to me go by. It's this very strange experience of security. It's a weird thing where like 
that presence. You just know well, you're surrounded by by defense. I mean, to put it just straight up. And, and there's something about that that actually I find a ton of uh, maybe tranquility in. You know yeah. that it, it, you're just there, and you can even see you can see the soldiers on the helicopters when they fly by because they'll do that yeah. low coastal uh, patrol, yeah. and it's it's kind of like a you know a tip of the hat up. And I've lived in you know many different places at this point in my life, and th- th- it's a it's a weird, it's just something that I noticed. It's enough of a thing that yeah. having been down here for two years, that sticks out to me all the time, and yeah. I do like it. I couldn't imagine. If I had that feeling, you know, on the tail end of 28 years of being on the helicopter, of being in that environment and to now be in a completely different state where that's just not an element. Yeah. So I'd like to relay a story to you, if I can, that uh, when I was when I was in my civilian job, I worked um, I did tactical ranges and training areas for the SEAL team specifically. That was my job. And I traveled all over the country uh, and sometimes even overseas to places where our guys trained. I was, I was embedded into it deep. And we were up in Washington State and doing a what we call a public outreach because there's a, um, we have a footprint up there where we train around um, you know, Pus- Puget Sound. Yes, Bremerton yep. area. And there was a big uproar about the SEALs wanting to train in state parks and things like this. Uh, Very, very, very small footprint. We're talking four guys, you know, over a 72-hour cycle doing training, reconnaissance training. And the pushback from the public and some of these comments that these people would make. So at these public outreach sessions, there, you know, everybody, the public, it is for the public. And we would have these um, almost stations set up in these venues. It could be at a library, could be at an elementary school, what have you. We did, uh, we did five of them in a week, Monday through Friday. And uh, it was always at night. So everybody could attend. And the anti-military sentiment that came across was just um that was a hard pill for me to swallow um the and it was almost you know people would say there's plenty of bases why here why in my backyard and um you know and so we would go through the the steps of explaining it all that you know you know it's these particular reasons why this is probably one of the most ideal settings that you know in austere settings that we could find to do this we've scoured the country and this is the best place that we found and you know we would really be super appreciative if we could get your support on this and you know not only no but hell no i don't want you in my backyard um i don't want you in their their idea was that we were spying on them that you know this was a big brother thing spying on you know everyday citizens and it didn't matter how many different ways you tried to explain that this was a training opportunity for our servicemen for our our seals to uh you know to get ready for 
deployments overseas or a combat deployment to, you know, hopefully make America a better place. And um, it was, you know, the only thing that I could really, a parallel that I can maybe draw on this is, you know, the 1960s and 70s demonstrations, you know, anti-military, anti-war demonstrations. And I get it. War is not, you know, nobody wants war. But when you train for war, you train for combat and to have your own fellow Americans tell you, I don't want you training in my backyard, go someplace else, you know? Um, And then even we had one guy that was so anti-military, so anti-war that he literally was very dramatic, got down on his knees in front of several of us and begged us to leave government service. He asked a couple of the SEALs that were there, please get out of the military. Don't ever do this and don't allow your children to do this. And I'm just thinking to myself, if we didn't allow our children to do this and if we didn't do this, where would we be? You know, this is, um, you know, it was just amazing to me. Because not not to be contrarian in any way, but I, I feel like it's easy to see both sides of this from if you're a a peaceful person, right. And you don't want, you don't like conflict. You're not someone who's going to get in an altercation ever. You're not going to get road rage and pull over on the side of the road and go face to face with someone. You stray away from any kind of physical interaction and you want peace. I totally get that. I totally understand the desire for peace. And, and I think it's, it's wholesome and I, I would love to live in a world where that's possible. On the flip side of that, that's not the world that we live in. It's never right. ever been the world that we live in. Conflict is hardwired into human nature. It, it, it is yes. from a, a protective level of evolution of keeping the seeds and the berries that you found away from other people that might want them. I mean, it is, it's unfortunate and at the same time, and maybe I've really only gotten this perspective from speaking with other people who have served at this point and people who have positive experience about having served and those that have really negative experience from having served is that there is so much happening behind the curtain nonstop all the time, every single day, every single minute, and you'll never hear about it. You'll never know the names. You'll never see the eyes. You'll never know the face. You'll never shake the hand, ever. Mm-hmm. And when you travel and you go to third world countries and you see elements of how bad bad can be, and, and from yeah. a withdrawn standpoint, you're, you're not living in the slum that you're looking at. You're looking at it, and you're going, oh, that's so sad. It's so unfair that people live this way. When you go and you physically see that firsthand, I personally can't help but on some level be grateful for people out there serving, whether they know 100% what they're doing or not. There, there is something that, I don't know, it I, I, I has to be appreciated. And I remember the first time that I ever noticed this was traveling to Egypt. I went to Cairo for my 21st birthday. And there's, Cairo is, you know, that's a third world country. There are 
wealthy people living directly on top of absolute slums. There's no zoning laws. There's trash everywhere. There's stray animals everywhere. There's more traffic than I've ever seen in my life. It is insane. There's beautiful and parts too. Chaotic certainly. traffic. Yeah. Chaotic. There's incredible food. There's. It's not to say that it's all negative, but there's. There are true slums that you can see and walk through. And I came back and I turned 21 and I landed in, in Minneapolis and I went to get my first legal beer at the rock bottom bar in the airport. And I sat next to someone who was, happened to be military. And I just looked at them and I was like, I don't really know how to say this, but thank you. Just, that's kind of it. I, I don't, I can't unpack everything I'm trying to say, but I just want you to say that I thank you. I appreciate it. And we had this moment where, uh, you know, he was very, he was very grateful for that comment. And that's not what it was about, but it was this moment of seeing, seeing military from a different view, I guess. Right. Right. And not everyone will have that experience, you know, you know, so the brutality, the brutality of war, um, whether it's just a, a sliver that somebody experiences or it's a lifetime that somebody experiences of, you know, training and deploying and, you know, doing these things. Um, there was a doctor who was over in Afghanistan. He was with Doctors Without Borders, I believe. Um, a very, you know, um, you know, the organization is very genuine and what they want to do, their mission statement, uh, you know, providing medical care to those that can't, you know, that don't have it, right? And uh, this guy was, he was in, you know, the far reaches of Afghanistan and was captured, taken hostage. And uh, one of our Medal of Honor recipients, uh, you know, buyers who um, was on that hostage rescue to rescue this doctor and Nick Check lost his life, um, you know, on that operation in that room, the very same room where the doctor was rescued. And the doctor, when he got back home, got back to the United States, said some very negative things about how brutal the SEALs were that rescued him, uh, how they just unleashed hell on the enemy within that room. And it was sort of like, well, what the hell did you expect would happen? Um, you know, the guys were there to rescue you and to get you out of this situation where you were literally being held hostage and your life was at stake. And they had actually gotten received some tips that they were talking about, you know, voice chatter that these guys were talking about executing the doctor. So it was a time sensitive operation. And they rescued the guy and he comes home and he's literally, he's, you know, he's talking smack about, you know, how brutal the operation was and that the, the SEALs didn't have to be that brutal. And yes, we did. Yes, the guys did. I mean, I wasn't on the operation. A friend of mine was. Right. And it was, it, it has to be brutal. It is brutal. And but people go out and put themselves in harm's way all the time and thinking that, you know, everything is, you know, they'll respect me because I'm not here to wage war. You know, the, the 
Canadian guy and his American wife that decided they were going to go backpacking through Afghanistan. And uh, things went very sideways on them. And they were captured. She was raped. He was beaten. And uh, finally, they were rescued. Uh, you know, they had a different viewpoint of it. And that was, wow, did we go in fully blindfolded on this one? And it was not a good decision to go there. And thank you to, you know, the troops that got us out. Um, so people, I think people have a very uh, naive view of, you know, what it's like overseas in other parts of the world. Um, you know, Americans that said, if Donald Trump wins this election, I'm going to leave the country. You know, at the end of the day, we still have it a lot better than so many other countries around the world. And people right. in those countries would trade places with us in a nanosecond, even if we had the bottom of bottom of presidents, you know, the worst president ever, America is still a great place to be. I think that's that exact point is, and this touches quite a bit on, on the book that you wrote. That's what was so frustrating to me about the initial days of the pandemic was in my eyes, the most patriotic thing you could do is participate in the protection of everybody. Absolutely. Right? Is to protect yourself and protect your neighbor. It's the, it got twisted in ideology, in right, right versus left, you versus me, vax, unvax, anti-vax. They're lying to you. They're telling the truth. Science, don't trust science. It got muddled in that. When if you sift that all out, here's the first time in history that a virus has circulated and at the same time, scientific development is capable of producing a vaccine in record time yeah. to widely distribute, to keep more than anything at-risk people from severe symptoms that are going to kill them. Rewind your, my grandma wrote me this letter very early on, and, and she reflected on the polio pandemic, and she reflected on, you know, pe people would have been clamoring at the, lining oh, yeah. up at the doorstep for anything, for anything to stop the virus from spreading, right? I mean, that's how ready people would have been, and it's just the time and the, the identity politics around it that that muddled the water. It oh, made yeah. it chaotic and it made people feel it made people feel different than they th than they actually feel. It made people unsure of what they thought. Well, and sure. It's not to discredit anyone's individual choice because that's a key part of living here is the ability to choose what you do and don't want to do. That's right. But it was you had mentioned in, in a an episode you did with someone this idea of common sense and I, I loved that note that you had because if you take it all away and just assess that part, assess the common sense part of it, and, and maybe do it by yourself, just sit in a room by yourself and think about the common sense aspect, what is the most patriotic way that you could handle it? That it doesn't make you weak, it doesn't make you a pussy, no. that, you know, it's, it's none of that. It's just what can you do? And how can you, how can you do global, your part? Right. I, yeah. It doesn't seem insane to me. And, and I think a lot of that 
and I, I've been, you know, in the the mix of all sides of it, especially in in the martial arts community. It's very very mixed on how people feel, and especially the martial arts community within San Diego, right? It's very mixed mm-hmm. perspectives on on this. Yeah, it doesn't change how I feel about any one of them, you know, or and I hope it doesn't change the way any of them feel about me, and that's the beauty of being here. But I will say that traveling the world and being exposed to how much worse it could be oh god really yeah. grounds you in in what's going on here absolutely um you know my parents grew up uh they were kids during world war ii and uh, my father grew up in uh, brooklyn new york and he told us the story about um you know lights out at night sacrifice of you know uh you know turning over, you know, uh, or, or voluntarily giving out your, your metal cookware other than, you know, keeping the bare minimum to still make meals, but anything extra, give it up for the war effort. And, you know, the sacrifices that Americans made during World War II was just incredible. Um, you know, these, these guys, you know, or, you know, service members and even women as well going overseas for an indefinite amount of time. There was no, you know, hey, honey, I'm leaving in April and I'll be back in October. No, it was, I'm leaving in April. I'll see you when I see you, I hope. That kind of thing. And um, my father's uh, uncles, all but one of them served. And the one that didn't serve, he had a heart murmur. He had gone to every branch of the service and tried to join every branch of the, of the military that he could and was turned away because of his heart murmur. And the guy was distraught that he couldn't be that part of the war effort. And uh, he never got over it, never got over it. And one of his, one of my father's uncles died. He was on a Navy ship that got uh, torpedoed by a Japanese submarine, lost at sea, never recovered. And that just compounded his other uncles, his brother, you know, his uncle's brother's uh, emotional side of it all that, um, you know, why wasn't it? Why, why couldn't I go? Why couldn't I trade places with him? And I would do it in a heartbeat. And, you know, to that, to my dad's uncle's, you know, end of, end of his days, his last day on earth, you know, said that. And, um, you know, and the sacrifices that people were willing to make at that point in time, I think now nine eleven days and weeks and months and even a couple of years after that this was again probably an extremely patriotic country everybody was joined in this effort and then as the war went on and then we got into iraq and then we got into you know parts of africa where you know service members were dying and people asking why you know why are we there now why why did we go there uh, Benghazi happened, and that's that's when these divisions just started ripping us apart, and uh, everything was politicized, uh, Democrats against Republicans, and you go onto social media today, and um, you know I I skim through Twitter. I'm banned from Facebook for life, by the way, uh, because of something I said. Are you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I tried. Wait, to... can you say what you said? I mean, you're safe on here. 
it was it was something about one of the political candidates in 2016 and um that's all i'll say about it uh but they i was i was stripped of my rights to be on facebook but so i'm on twitter now and i see these comments where you know these people you know that don't even use their real name for their their login or what you know it shows you know they they use some sort of you know nickname or something else and they're just outright the the ugliness that fellow americans are showing each other is just incredible and and then in some cases even in person you know face to face these people that are in these demonstrations and then across the street is the you know the opposite side and the ugliness that they're showing is just really it's disturbing to me and um yeah and i just i can't even imagine participating in something like that the only thing i brought up on facebook about the politician was just the facts the history of this individual's behavior and that was all i said and uh you know because because facebook had you know their alliances with who they were you know with there's like oh well we don't like you now because you said this about our favorite candidate and you know you're banned right. for life so anyway that's it and it, it really didn't hurt my feelings media does Social media puts fuel on the fire of any issue because, and I mean, this is this is no mystery now, right? I think feel like plenty of podcasts and, and documentaries and stuff have really uncovered this exact problem. Like, you go back to I don't know, you go to nineteen. My mom was born nineteen sixty four. You go nineteen seventy. You got a problem with somebody. I would imagine you you got one option, <laughs> two options. You internalize it forever or you go to that person and you say something to them and that then you got a choice you know you're in some sort of altercation people can just sit back behind the disguise of their moniker or whatever their tag is and just rifle off they can rifle off whatever they want whatever information they want lies truths facts pseudo facts they can attack people they can be attacked and not care about it you know the whole, it's almost like you do have to make a choice how you're going to participate in social media and what effect you're going to allow it to have on you because it can be so powerful on one side. It can be really positive. You know, I have, uh, in some aspects, a strong relationship that's good with social media because it helps me grow this show. It helps me reach out to people. It helps me market. It helps me get it into markets and areas where they would never know because we don't live in the same community. Right. But then there's bad sides. You know, I'll, I'll share a, a video or a clip or something sometime from the show, and I read through the comments. I'm like, wow, who has the time in their day to put that together? <laughs> I'm like, right. I kind of laugh at it. I'm like, don't, don't you have other things that, like, might be pressing in your life? Then uh, it's true. It's just unfiltered hate because there's no repercussions right there's none some of these people punched in the face for being an asshole right (laughs) and well you know uh, last time i checked being an asshole wasn't a crime either but um i think it but it 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 goes against um you know those 10 virtues that i that you know that i found back in 1983 that were just you know and, and is even now, as I read those, I'm like, you know, 
if I just even would have known these, you know, or read this sheet when I was in high school, even, or middle school, I probably would have behaved in a different way. Um, you know, and, and I think that's really what the bottom line is, is, is behavior and, uh, you know, coming full circle and, you know, why I wrote the book was John Land and I were talking and, uh, he's, he's my co-author and we were talking about, you know, the pandemic and how people were acting, reacting and the political divisions. And we had these long conversations, uh, before we ever even decided to write this book together. And, um, we were both just amazed at how this, you know, the divisiveness within the country and the, you know, the name calling and the, you know, the naysayers and the yaysayers, you know, all those different the vaxxers, the non-vaxxers, so on and so forth. And the mere fact that people hated somebody else or said, you know, unleashed a vicious attack on somebody on social media because they were a Republican or because they were a Democrat. And you still see it today. And, um, you know, I've got a pretty strong suspicion that John is a Democrat. I don't care. You know, yeah. I'm a conservative Republican. And, uh, you know, and he doesn't care. Uh, you know, and nor should, people just shouldn't care. But they've, they've actually divorced themselves from certain friendships because of how yeah. somebody, how a, how a former friend thinks politically. Or, you know, on well, a certain I think it's subject. Because people aren't doing this. And that's the problem. Is I can be liberal and you can be conservative. And I honestly, do, it does not change my perspective of you. It doesn't change the fact that I've spent an hour and a half talking to you and getting to know you and understand you and your story and everything that you've put into your time and service. I, I We can have this experience. And I, I don't think... Most people are not sitting down for 15 minutes and talking to anyone that even has a differing view. And if they do have a differing view, entering the conversation with a question like why or how or curiosity, listening, yeah. you know, key parts of having a conversation. Instead, everyone's jockeying for position. Everyone's trying to prove that their stance is the right stance. And the bottom line right. is you're going to fail and one of you is going to fail in the conversation if that's the goal. It would be like, you know, going into buds with expectations about what the schedule will be. It's just yeah. you're at a disservice. And you can have completely I've, – I've really tried to um, put myself out of my comfort zone and live by this, of having conversations with people that may think differently than I do. I guess within you know some parameters, I don't need to go and have a, a conversation with a Nazi about their <laughs> beliefs. <laughs> but you know, when I when I meet people and they feel a certain way, you know, for example, about vaccinations is a great one. I'm just curious what someone's stance is, right? And sure. I, and I can actually, I feel like I can be in that conversation. I can hear them, and I might disagree 100, percent and I might disagree by action, right? Yeah. But that doesn't, to me, that doesn't change my view of, of, what, of who they are and, and how they're going about their life. I might not get it. It might not make sense to me. I might want it to be different. 
mm-hmm. but I really try in those situations to listen the best that I can to at least understand where someone's coming from. Right. Cause that's kind of the, that levels the, the playing field. Yeah. And then well, you can actually going... start to learn. Yeah. If you, you go into something with an open mind, whether it be a conversation, whether it be, you know, some sort of educational course or a book, you know, so I just read something interesting the other day about how the vast majority of people read books that only appeal to, you know, what they, how they think, what they like, and they rarely, if ever, stray out of their comfort zone and buy, buy a book that they normally would never buy and then read it and really yeah. digest it, dive into it and, uh, you know, see what this other person is what they're writing about and discovering something new, um, you know, and just going in with a, a, a wide open optic on this. And yeah. I had a, I had a, a, a good friend that I made in uh, back in New York and he was a Democrat. It didn't bother me. And during the pandemic, he and I would meet places and just catch up and just talk. But it was, we would always have the question to each other, well, what do you think of what happened this week? Or <laughs> right. what do you think about what so-and-so said? And we would listen to each other. And yeah. I mean, he is, he is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. And I had absolutely no problem with him. And he's still to this day just a, a really good friend. And, uh, yeah. you know, I've got no problem with that. But I've heard people say. And I think that's possible. Oh, of course it is. Of course it is. If you if you enter into a conversation or you go to a you go to a, a party or just into a bar and you started a conversation with someone and it was just a genuine conversation about daily events, right? Or just you know, current events and what's happening, but you never revealed what your political stance was. Right. These people would never be any the wiser unless they just asked you straight out, are you a Democrat or a Republican? And, you know, well, to be honest with you, I'd rather not answer that because I like the conversation that we're having. And, <laughs> you know, but that, you know, that person then would become skeptical of you. Unless, right. of course, you lied and this person was, they've made it known that they're a Democrat or, you know, and then you lie and you say, well, you know what, I'm a Democrat as well. Oh, well, great. And now you've just become great friends. You've got a, you know, you've got a right, connection right. there. When in reality, yep. you may not be that. And, you know, but you just wanted to dive in, peel the onion and see what this person was talking about or what how they felt about things. Um, We as a country have we've we've gone to extreme points that are counterproductive to being a great country. And, you know, what's the hilarious part to me is that the two fringes are more like each other than anyone else along the spectrum. Right. Far right extreme extreme people and far left extreme people, they're so similar in their clandestine tunnel vision beliefs of how things should be that they actually share more psychological <laughs> they would be willing traits to admit. than anyone. Yeah. Which is so it's so funny. And to your point, the book thing, I I find that an interesting comment because I can't reach it. But this past year I did that. I read this book called the libertarian mind by this guy. Um, I forget his first name. His last name is Boaz. And I was just curious. I know nothing about libertarian politics. And I, I hadn't for a long time. And so I read a book about it. 
but as uh, I guess you know a self-proclaimed liberal, it would be a departure from my viewpoints. But it was an interesting thought exercise because sure. what you find when you do this is that there's things you agree with and things you don't. Right. Just like in a conversation with somebody, right? And that is the healthy heartbeat of keeping yourself fresh, of keeping your ideas fresh and keeping yourself tuned in to the world around you and the people around you. Is To be able to go through something, whether it's a conversation, whether it's literature or an article, and do it with an open mind to where right. you might hear something that you <laughs> you find valuable. And I think that a lot of times people are uncomfortable with the thought that their perspective might change. Oh yeah. Because that that is scary, right? You don't want your you don't want to shatter your own belief system. So why yeah. even entertain anything that falls outside of the border of that? Yeah. When in reality those are the most powerful experiences. And it doesn't mean that you finish the book and everything about your world's different. Right. It's just maybe you you know, earned a teaspoon of empathy for someone else in a specific situation that you don't even know yet. And when you have yeah. that conversation with them in the future, now there's a little bit of fuel for your engine to run on and, and you're able to see through their perspective and understand. And that is a really important thing to me about being a, a human. Yeah. Is that willingness. Yeah. To, to have the, <laughs> to be with other people. Right. You know, the, these, you know, the, the, the 10 virtues that are listed in the, uh, the 10 essential qualities of an underwater demolition man, they're not politicized and they're not even sexualized. Yes. It's, it's not, you know, men only, women only other than underwater demolition man. Um, and it, other than that, if you were to remove that title and, you know, and maybe rephrase what Commander Kane had said of his expectations of his men and just said, my expectations of my people under my command, um, you know, you gender neutral this, this whole thing. And I think you would find that everybody agrees with what, what that sheet of paper says that, you know, yeah, yeah, we can, we can be like that. And, uh, but as soon as you, you know, that old, that old adage of, you know, the two things you never discuss, you know, in, uh, you know, at a cocktail party or something Religion like that is politics. exactly, you finished it for me, religion yeah. and politics, yeah. because those are two of the most divisive, uh, topics that are, that exist in the world today. And the vast majority of wars that have been waged have either been religious or, you know, or political. And, um, you know, other than, you know, the, the bare bones of, you know, territorial wars where, you know, hey, we need water and they also have food. So we need to go invade that parcel of, you know, continent right. because we need water and food to survive. That is gone. You know, those those right. you know, that's that's centuries old. Now it's for other reasons, because we are so transient, so nomadic these days that, you know, hey. You don't like living, you know, in this part of the world anymore. You can, you know, go to another part of the world where there is food and water, you know, if you have the means. Now, there's billions of people right. that don't have that means. Um, but, you know, here in America, we do, um, as well as in a lot of I, other countries. I kind of try to live almost 
consciously by the the antithesis of that and say like do talk about religion and politics but don't yeah. talk about it with an agenda talk no. about it with some curiosity i did this at you yeah. know my brother's wedding my brother's very religious i'm not religious and while i was sitting at the table i had a, a really riveting conversation with one of his very close friends and church members and we just i don't agree with anything that he said you know but right. we had a conversation about it and i i went through that conversation really trying to listen and and he did too you know to to my point to my perspective and it just felt healthy to sit there and talk to each other about we're both here right we're breathing the same air we're sitting in the same room we think yeah. about the world completely differently but it's no skin off my back or his to sit down and try to better understand one another and i think right. that 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 mindset can be withdrawn and applied to every single situation it's it's honestly it's one of the reasons that i love jujitsu and martial arts so much is because when you step on the mat it doesn't matter what your race your religion your occupation your ideology none of that matters everyone's there to get better at martial arts period and because it's physical and exhaustive and in the moment you're not getting choked out by your opponent and talking about uh, political agenda pieces. You know, like you're worried about defending yourself. <laughs> right. And it's, right. This, I think I, I read in, you know, in your book, maybe it wasn't explicit, but when you would talk about the people that you're alongside, you know, obviously it's a, a different situation because it's male dominated, but it's this, you break, going back to our point earlier, you kind of like break the barrier by the fact that you're all there doing the thing. Yeah. And uh, I think we forget that we're all here, l breathing the same air, driving the same cars down the same roads. That's right. It's It would be in our best interest to take a second <laughs> and like shelve it all. You know? Right. But the problem is the things that get clicked are the, the most heinous articles. The titles that get the attention are the yeah. negative ones. And yeah. in this you know, going back to mental health in this current place where more and more people are being vocal about their mental health struggles or issues, we're seeing that what we propagate promotes mental instability. And yeah. there's something about our psyche that is addicted to it. We love the, you know, what do they say? If it bleeds, it leads, right? Like, sure. We are tied to that for some reason. That's what we want to hear. We don't, not everyone's lining up to go to a Tony Robbins event, but <laughs> everyone yeah. will turn on the news and listen about a hostage capture or a situation. And that that's a hard thing to reflect on, too. I, I get a certain news feed uh, every day. And, you know, what I like about it is it's not politicized. They just report the facts as they know them, but they also uh, present another side um all sides is the website breaking points yeah oh and also probably something similar yeah yeah and uh and so you can actually pick and choose you know and so you can actually see the same stories lined up from different news agencies and you read the headlines and it's they go strange. from they go from you know it's the same exact reporting on the same exact topic but yet how they're sensationalized or how they're spun or just even just the pure, pure wording of the headline 
and what you're drawn to. And sometimes I'll just read the opposite perspective just to, to see what they're saying and how they say it. And then I'll read the same, a, another article on the same subject on the far extreme other side, just to see how they wrote it and what they're trying to get that reader to believe or to, you know, whatever, understand or, you know, to digest. And um, it's interesting. It takes a long time to read through the news like that, but it's interesting. And, um, you know, and I, yeah. and I, I totally agree with you that, uh, you know, and main, you know, the all mainstream media and Fox is in this as well, because they participate in the same thing that CBS, NBC and ABC do, along with the main other news outlets that are out there, which there's hundreds now. Um, what, you know, exactly what you said, they want to sensationalize, they want you to read their perspective. And that's what is, uh, and people only reading that one perspective. Um, you know, what was it? Um, 40, $40 billion budget and 87,000 new IRS agents. And one news outlet said all 87,000 are going to be armed. You know, they're going to be law enforcement, uh, you know, uh, law enforcement officers, and they're going to forcibly take our money from us you know, or something to that extent. And it's like, well, and, and think about what? that. I mean, someone's getting, someone's getting only that. Yeah. You know, that's, what's crazy. Someone's only getting that. And, and they going, only believe that. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. And so they call their neighbor and they're like, Hey, can you, can you believe this? Did you, Oh, I saw that too. Now you got, yeah. you know, it's, it's the echo chamber problem. It's when you're, when you're in a, like a conversation bubble and it, it you just hear everything that you say and it comes back to it's it, it, it i think honestly i think the solution is conversations like this i think that a lot of these news agencies media agencies they are spinning their wheels in the mud a little bit and they're seeing that it's not working and it, unfortunately that pushes further clamoring for attention which creates more extreme headlines and more in your it enables news, it I, enables I feel them. like yeah you know? it, it, it does and there has to be i don't know i feel like there's got to be some tipping point where maybe we where people you know nobody wants to go through i i hope uh another social disaster like the pandemic you know, right. it, it really was it was a, it was just a social ball drop we oh we God. fumbled as a country on the messaging and everyone didn't know what play it was. And that, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I hope that we don't, um, that we don't well, repeat and, ourselves in, in that. And even, even our, our top scientists couldn't agree on what the right, right. Um, what the right course of action was. And the thing that frustrated me a lot, whenever somebody would ask me my opinion on the pandemic and what I thought was the right course of action, I would, I would suggest to them to research the Spanish flu and read the history on that, that pandemic. And it was eerily parallel to the COVID-19 pandemic. Whereas, you know, people were resistant to doing certain things. There was, uh, in a lot of the, the major cities, there was a mask mandate. And, uh, you know, and they were quarantining people and, you know, curfews and things like this just to keep the spread from happening.
but it happened and it happened on a very large scale over the course of four phases in two years. And I would just tell people, I said, this is not the first time this has happened. And, you know, especially in America. And, um, you know, the, you know, you nailed it on the head was with the messaging from the top down. And, uh, well, you know, if our, if our leadership at the top is saying this, then, you know, it's got to be true, you know, or, you know, yes, masks will help. No, they won't the next week by the same person. Right. I mean, look, like you, you gave such a good example of this. It's a, and anyone who's ever done anything in like a management or a leadership position knows this. The first big failure you make is just a miscommunication of expectations. That's it. So much so that in buds, handing out the wrong schedule makes someone quit when the schedule changes, right? They signed up, they made it all the way. Something as simple as a, a, they set the expectation on accident, right? Someone gets a hold of the schedule. It's not what they thought it was. The panic ensues and they quit. Yeah. All that had to happen is as scientists, as any kind of governing body, look, scientists get shit wrong and that's a good thing. That's a feature of science. It's not a bug of science. That's how yeah. things improve. Failure shows areas of weakness, of exposure, things that have to be corrected for things to be effective. So come out and say that, hey, this is developing by the day. Yeah. And we don't know exactly where we're going to be in one week. Given the current information, everything that we know to this point, this is our best suggestion. We right. will continually up, you know, something along those lines where you're, you're establishing authority while also recognizing that you're not omnipotent. You don't have every single answer. Not yeah. everything is known. And that now, what that does, it puts people at ease. Right. Like, okay. I can sit with that. We don't yeah. know exactly what's going to go on, but I'll be updated. Yeah. When you go, it's this, or here's the schedule. Psych, boats on heads now. People are like, I'm going to quit. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I don't like boats just, on heads. I'm done. Up for a... Yeah. Right. And if it had just been... I just, I hope that, I don't know. I, I have no idea what, what will happen in the future, but well, I just I think, hope that there's alignment I, on expectations. I think where a lot of leaders uh, this day and age get it wrong, and I'm talking mostly about the, you know, probably the people that are on the, you know, the television screen or in the newspapers every day. Um, you know, so here we are going through the political primaries across the country. And all these, you know, it's, you know, so-and-so is bashing so-and-so. He's not the right guy. I'm the right guy. This, that, and thing. Words matter. Words matter when, you know, people say things. And the, um, you know, certain leaders absolutely never learned that lesson. And they just blurt something out. And then, like, oh, I could pull that back, you know. No, you can't. That's it. It's out, you know. Uh, that horse has left the barn, you know, and you cannot get it back. Right. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the scientific world, they just couldn't seem to, you know, uh, you know, the NIH and the DC, it was like, guys, you're on the same team, you know, talk about this before you have the press conference and let's get one word out. That's right. And another thing that I found disturbing about this whole pandemic was, you know, and my wife and I, we, you know, we, we read, we research, we go into things with an open mind and, but people were getting wrapped around the axle 
on its origination. And I get it. We want to point the blame at somebody and how it happened. But what we failed to do was now what's the next measure? Okay. It's here. It happened. Now what do we do? Because discovering where it came from is not going to help the hundreds of thousands of people that over a million people in the United States alone that have died from this because a lot of them, even on their deathbed, said, I wish I would have done this instead. You know, I wish I would have got the vaccine. I wish I would have worn a mask. And here they are on their deathbed dying alone with a person that's suited up like they're going to outer space. That's the only person that's left. Right. Or not or not seeing their family. Yeah. You it is a good it is a good point that it's not to discredit the importance of discovering the origin or discovering cloudiness around the origin and and anything related to that. But discovering that at that moment doesn't lend itself towards the solution, which is right. And and I mean, maybe that's a, you know, thinking about this with your tactical experience, right? Like I could probably imagine a trillion situations where you're in combat and worrying about the wrong thing causes you or your team your life instantly right so you become effective in keeping your eye on the prize and making decisions around that and in a team of you know four or five people word is gold so when steve says go we go right right and on the back let's go there's no don't overthink it but wait hesitation right because hesitation destroys the tactical maneuver and so when you think about stuff like that, it's very easy to establish a hierarchy of like what needs to be fixed this moment, right? And what doesn't? Right. You know, my I t- talked to my my dad about this stuff with construction. When you're building a house, millions of problems arise during the construction of a home, and you yeah. have plans, and you never build the house to the exact plan. It's just not what happens, right? right. You dig the foundation, and it slides. Didn't plan for that. You install a pipe and it bursts. Didn't plan for that. Now you got to take out the drywall, redo the whole, you know, the list goes on. But there's always a subconscious hierarchy of things that have to be done in certain order so that the house at the end of the day gets built. Yeah. And if you want to take the built house and go back and sue someone for the drywall or the tile, or you know, you can do that later effectively and it doesn't change the outcome. And I, I, I totally agree uh, with that's... you, I think. But it, it goes back to the sensationalization. What sells? Finding a solution right. or lab leak hypothesis, you know, like it's just very easy to, cl- to clamp on to that. Yeah. Because that's you talk about it with your friends and it's, you know, there's it, it, it this, this whole thing was on the other side. Yeah. And, you know, and this whole thing was, um, you know, everybody had their theories. I had my theory and I even I even vocalized my theory to, you know, some family and friends. Uh, that asked me my opinion about how or why it happened. And, but what I'm, you know, what I didn't do was I didn't go onto social media and blast it out. And I didn't do, uh, geez, that was loud. Um, I didn't, you know, yeah, I, I just didn't say things that would further inflame or even alienate me from certain people or certain, um, you know, circumstances. And, mm-hmm. You know, not that I got it right. I I probably I'm probably way off base on my hypothesis of how this whole thing came about. 
But what we did do immediately was take proactive steps. And my wife and I said, you know, we made the decision within our household of two that from now on, you know, from this point forward, when we go out and we go into a store to go grocery shop, we're going to wear a mask. And we have, you know, gel and hand wipes in the car. So when we get back, when we get into the car, we clean our hands, we wipe down the surfaces and, uh, you know, we took very proactive measures. And at one point when it was really, really scary and anybody and everybody was getting it, um, I was the one that went out and did the grocery shopping because I, you know, you know, we both know that I have a higher tolerance to, you know, bugs and infection and things like that. And so when I came home, I came in through the garage with the groceries, dropped them off, you know, at the bottom of the stairs. And we even took all the groceries out and put them into another bag to take them upstairs to the kitchen. And I took off all my clothes that I wore to the store, threw them in the washing machine, and I had another change of clothes downstairs. You know, so going through this whole, you know, uh, you know, chem bio, you know, <laughs> decontamination process, you know, because it was scary. We didn't want this. And I had a friend of mine that ended up in the hospital that, I mean, this guy was a physical specimen. He was an animal. And he ended up in a coma for 45 days. His sister got it from the same individual that he had gotten it from. And she died while he was in a coma. He came out of it and he's still, he's, he's a long hauler. His, you know, he doesn't have feeling in both hands below his elbow. Um, you know, his one leg drags. He's, you know, and this is a guy that was in the teams with me that was a freaking beast, you know. Uh, you know, so this thing, this, you know, this, this virus has had its effect on people in ways that, you know, we're not going to recover from it. The only thing we can do is go forward and live into the new normal because the old normal doesn't exist anymore. I guess this is a it, it's a great transition um, because of that idea of an inflection point to get back to. And, and I'd love to close with a discussion on this is this. The episode that you had was in a way an inflection point in your life, right? It, yeah, there had been things that had been piling up over, you know, years. And maybe you can walk through for those who haven't read the book what happened and then also what that led you to do afterwards in terms of seeking help in terms of that recognition because in the book it's it's very much a clear point where you realize despite how tough you are and elite and everything you've been through and making it as a navy seal in 28 years it was this point where you realized it was equally tough to seek help which i think is a very important thing for people to be okay with doing as someone who has seen therapists at different points in my life makes me no weaker a person if actually anything, it probably makes, makes you stronger stronger i think yeah yeah right so maybe yeah maybe you can walk through you know if anyone's listening and they're going through something challenging i mean steve's you know the toughest most hardened person that i know and this story is very real so I had already known that, you know, that I had some hypervigilance going on in my, in my life, uh, you know, in my psyche. And what I didn't want to acknowledge, though, was, you know, and I had looked up hypervigilance um, 
because the, the command psychologist, who was also a friend of mine, I, I went to him after I had had the, the window smashing episode with the, you know, the young man in Coronado. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, you know, you've, you know, you've got you've got hypervigilance going on. And he explained to me what it was and everything else. And I just took that at face value and said, oh, OK, I've got hypervigilance, you know, and I went and looked it up and I, I glossed over the part that said that hypervigilance can be a key marker of PTSD because I don't have PTSD. Nobody told me I have PTSD. And so I went along stumbling through life. And um, what I you know, began to experience was more things sort of piling on top of me in little ways. And, uh, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back sort of, uh, you know, line of thinking. Well, I was in Albuquerque visiting my folks and I'm driving along with my father and we're on a stretch of road in the, in the heights there of Albuquerque where the speed limit's 55 miles an hour. And we're actually going through an intersection. Uh, we've got the green light. And this guy with a large pickup truck decides that he wants to sort of shoot the gap. He's, you know, you could turn left on a, on a green light as long as you yield to oncoming traffic. This guy decided not to yield to oncoming traffic. He's pulling a large trailer with him, a heavy duty trailer. And we were closing the gap on this thing at 55 miles an hour. And he just wasn't getting through the intersection. What I felt was fast enough. My father wasn't applying the brakes or even taking his foot off the accelerator. Um, at least I thought, you know, because we were still moving along at a steady clip. And it just, everything came crashing down around me. And um, this uh, anxiety, almost, uh, you know, kind of a breakdown that occurred to me was, all of a sudden, I had these same feelings that uh, that happened to me when I was almost in a helicopter crash, and uh, it was a brownout situation overseas. And uh, a brownout is like a, a large dust storm, and the the pilots don't even have visibility of the first ten feet in front of them, and uh, they have right. to sort of stay on the course, slow down, or come to a hover, and then try to land this thing. And even in a brownout condition you know, that can still result in a crash. We got out of that right. brownout situation, but there was panic on the helicopter and there was panic among the crew that then sort of gave panic to the rest of us like, oh shit, we're going down. And so I've, I've got courses of action going through my head. Okay, we go down and we survived the helicopter crash. Now what? Now what do I do? Well, now I was in a situation where here I was again, I wasn't at the controls. I didn't have my foot on the accelerator or could touch the brake or anything like that, or even snatch the wheel. I knew that if I reached across and snatched the wheel, that I could create the, a more complicated situation or even a deadly situation where we roll the vehicle. And um, right. so this, I, I just couldn't get my heart rate down even after we passed. And my dad's like, Jesus, what's your problem? We missed the guy. We missed the guy. Okay, that's that's not, you know, it's like, hey, we didn't get in an accident. Everything's good, you know? And, uh, you know, and I've been in, I've been in too many situations where, um, you know, and I'll even call them, even in training, near-death situations where I recognize that my heart rate is up 
and I was not in control of, this, of that particular situation. I, I could only control how I reacted. And I had actually lost control of my reaction. And um, I just wasn't, I wasn't the same 10 minutes after we got through that intersection. I wasn't the same when we met my dad's friend for coffee at the end of that trip that we were on. And, um, and he had actually seen, and this guy, luckily for me, was a, he was a counselor. He was also a former POW in Vietnam, spent, you know, the better part of six months in the Hanoi Hilton before they released all the, all the POWs. This guy understood and could recognize somebody that was in distress. And he knew me. I'd met him for, with my dad for coffee plenty of times before. And he knew that something was wrong with me. And he talked to me, uh, you know, hey, what happened? What's going on? And I explained to him the situation. And, um, you know, and he sat there and he listened and he talked me through everything. And, um, you know, then at that point in time, I sort of kind of collectively started to sort of calm down, but I was still shaken. Shaken for what reason? I don't know. I had almost been in plenty of accidents in my life, uh, both in vehicles or, you know, on deployments or in training. And, but for some reason, I wasn't recovering from this. I wasn't getting past it. And my wife actually was the one that suggested that, um, that I contact somebody back at our old headquarters and find out how I can get some help. Uh, and not just help through going to see a psychologist. I could have gone back to New York and gone and see a, seen a psychologist of, you know, of any, you know, any background. But what I needed to do was see somebody that was um, expert in their field at dealing with post-traumatic stress. And when I went to the veteran program that I was referred to by my old headquarters, um, that was a game changer. That was, uh, it was a lifesaver. And these people knew how to deal, how to talk to people or, you know, and, and work with people. It's not just talking to somebody or listening to them and then saying, well, what you're feeling is this. They had a completely right. different approach to what I believed going to see a psychologist was all about. And up until that point, the only psychologist that I had ever gone to see was my friend at the center who you know, was, I just told him about, Hey man, I smashed this dude's window last night and, uh, you know, came to within an inch of getting arrested. And he just casually talked to me about it, but that was it. He's like, Hey, is everything good? He slaps me on the knee and I'm like, yeah, I'm good. You know? And I, I put on my, you know, my brave face and I walked out the door and continued being a master chief at the center. When in reality, that was the point in time when I probably needed the help and I didn't get it. It wasn't his fault. And it wasn't my fault. It was the failure of the two of us to recognize that, you know, I had hit a point where I needed this help. And um, I found a lot of shame in going to see a psychologist at that point in time. Uh, matter of fact, when I left his office, you know, you walk out the door and you kind of take a look left and a look right, make sure that none of my none of my peers were in the hallway to see that I was coming out of the psychologist's office, you know. Uh, the command psychologist. So um, still a lot of shame and in, in dealing with those emotions and, um, you know, and, and getting help, getting an outside perspective, somebody that's trained professionally in this, 
not just going and talking to a friend who's then going to tell you, hey, stop being a pussy. You know, you're fine. You know, you didn't you didn't crash in that it's car so accident. Different. It's so it really different is. when you see a, a professional who's trained in it because it's not it's not weak. You know, it, it it's not weak to go and ask for help. It, it doesn't make you a lesser. Like we said, it actually really does make you a stronger person because the harder thing to do is to depart from what you think about yourself and to go and get help. That's yes. the hardest step. That's because that's when you're admitting to yourself that something's out of your control and it's not okay. Yeah. Everything up until that point when you decide to go is just you lying to yourself. And it's that's yeah. the weakness. That's yeah. the weakness is the part that keeps you out of getting the professional help. Right. It's, I mean, it's, there's not really another way to put it, but when you make that step and you, you start to see the progress and you also realize how impactful it can be for other people. And look, it doesn't mean that every single person has to go see a therapist, not for no. everybody, but knowing no. that the option is there to seek help is, should be comforting. Yeah. And people come, come out of that stuff better off than they went in with tools to handle situations in the future coping coping tools um you know and that's what that's what this uh you know organization home base uh did for me i mean i'll be i'll be truthful about this i was scared shitless when i went in there because i didn't know what was going to happen um you know or or how it was how I would react to all of this and, uh, you know, how I would come out of it. And I mean, to be honest, between that year that I went to home base and the time frame after I retired, uh, there had probably been, it had been a, a good, better part of a decade. And um, I had contemplated suicide a couple of times. And, but only because I got into a frame of mind. I got into a dark space that that wasn't my norm was to talk or think or, or act out in self-harm. Um, that wasn't me. That wasn't my normal self. That was right. a completely different mindset that it was a dark place in my mind. Um, and I, I don't like the belief for a second that if you have a history of suicide in your family, which I do, um, that I will then fall victim to suicide at one point in time in my life. I don't want to believe that. I don't believe it. I believe in, you know, that getting that care and taking, you know, taking those measures to stop from going to that place. And, uh, you know, I call it dancing around the fire. And uh, there was plenty of times, plenty of times where I used to paddleboard a lot and, uh, you know, uh, I would use it as, as therapy and I would just paddle as hard as I could, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to the North fence that, that divided North Island and Coronado beach. And I would turn around and paddle back. And it was a great four mile paddle. Anybody that's never done it before and, you know, really getting out there and getting after it physically on a paddleboard, it's not easy. It's a tremendous upper body workout, but I thought that that's what I was, that I was working those demons out of my body. Right. But then there was days, you know, and I would finish a paddle and I would just be like, holy cow, that just smoked me. All that did was just smoke me. It didn't change my mental attitude of how I was feeling about myself on those days. 
And then there were some days where I actually got on my paddleboard and, <clears throat> and I paddled due west from the beach and uh, actually had some thoughts of just keep on paddling. Um, yeah. Yeah. Keep awesome. going. But then, uh, you know, then I, then I thought about it as I was at about mile three. Um, number one, okay, I'm not going to do this because some fisherman is going to find me and and rescue me you know when i didn't want to be rescued right. uh just let dude just let me die in peace out here no i can't do that i'm a human right. being right and then realizing too that i was now three miles out and i got to paddle three more miles back so now i'm on a six mile right. paddle uh, <laughs> right so you know it's um you know a lot of people and i've and i've had friends that had just that had died by suicide that uh, one friend in particular, Mark just took his life a couple of months ago. And, um, you know, of course, nobody saw it coming. Nobody realized that he was in, you know, this dark place. People were wondering why they didn't or were not able to recognize the signs or see the signs. Well, all those three things, you're not going to. You're not going to. Um, I didn't see the signs with my own mother before she took her life. And I had, I had just seen her two weeks before, uh, before she you know, committed suicide. So, you know, this, um, I really wish, and I don't know, I don't know if Mark ever went and saw anybody. I believe that if he would have seen the right person, that Mark would still be around today. He would still be alive. And, um, you know, this is a guy that, uh, holy cow, when you talk about, you know, that, that warrior, that SEAL that's gone and done a lot of things. I mean, this guy was in Afghanistan, Iraq. He was leading troops in combat. And, um, you know, if you were to listen to anybody that ever fell under Mark, you know, as a follower, and he was their leader, this guy was just an incredible SEAL, a phenomenal SEAL. Uh, this guy took the trade to a whole nother level. And yet here we were on the outside as civilians now, retired military, and something came crashing down around him. And uh, we don't know what it is. And we won't know what it is. So, you know. It's so sad. It's, I, the only thing I can think of is um, I sustained two panic attacks in my life one much more severe than the other but you there's no onset when the first one happens you've never experienced it right so like you driving through the intersection there's nothing to tell you that it's about to happen and no it's so sad that um your friend mark and your mother took their own lives and no one will ever know how swiftly that moment came on. And that's why it's so important, especially if you've, you know, if you've served, I mean, you're, you're, you're exposed to things that humans are not conditioned naturally to experience. Right. right. And so there's going to be psychological changes, trauma, damage. Um, there's some psychological benefits, right? Perseverance, ability to work through tough situations. There's the whole spectrum of things that can happen to your brain, but because of how detrimental some of those things can be, 
it's so important to get some of those out of your own brain right? and just talk to someone about them because it yeah. can come on like that. And it's so swift and it's out of nowhere yeah. and it's commandeering. It takes over your whole body and shuts everything down and you feel tunnel vision or you kind of black out, whatever that feeling may be. If you're unable to recognize that because you've never discussed it with someone where someone else could very well go, oh, Steve, it's totally normal. If you ever right. feel this going on, reach out to someone. Just yeah. that alone, that alone, the, the fact that someone else has your support, you're not alone yeah. in that. That can be the X factor. Well, in, in that, uh, you know, the community that I grew up in and that so many of my friends grew up in, Mark grew up in it, was, hey, you got that shit going on in your head? You know, you either keep it in, don't be a pussy, or you get the fuck out. And, but that's not a, that's not an answer. That's not a solution. And, um, you know, yeah, I'm on, I'm on one particular medication that helps me out with uh, maintaining that even keel. And um, quite honestly, if I wasn't on that, you know, I don't know where I would be at this point or if I would be. You right, know what I mean? Dice roll. You don't want to roll those dice. No, I don't. I don't. And that Why? was, that was the decision Why? that I made. Exactly. Why? And that was the decision that I made was I don't want to roll those dice. I want to, uh, you know, I want to be around for another 30 years, you know, with my with my partner in crime, yeah. you know, my wife um, and experience, yeah. continue to experience all these great experiences that we've had. And um, yeah. also, I think it would be important if anybody is kind of in this mindset that, um, you know, and it's they're probably, you know, people will probably think, oh, well, that's easy for him to say he got he got help or he understands, you know, his own, you know, feelings. He's very touchy feely with himself now. Um, I would I would beg you to think about what you would be leaving behind and that ripple effect on your spouse, on your family, on your friends um, and those people thinking about the why and the heartbreak, that, that crushing heartbreak. When I got the phone call back in April by a very good friend of mine who's a retired SEAL who knew Mark, who grew, he was one of the first people that he met when he checked into the team was Mark. And Mark was this guy that said, hey, new guy, come on, you know, let me show you the ropes. And, uh, and this guy was actually an officer. Mark was an enlisted. And within our community, within the SEAL teams, um, you know, a new guy is a new guy. Whether you're an officer or you're an enlisted, it doesn't matter. And an enlisted guy can mentor easily a junior officer. I've done it. Mark has done it. And, but this guy called me that night. And he said, hey, man, uh, how you doing? I'm like, oh, fine. You know, I'm like, hey, it's great to hear from you. You know, he goes, uh, are you driving or, you know, are you, you hanging out in the RV? He knew we were on the RV trip. And I said, no, I'm in the RV. Everything's cool. And uh, I said, what's up? And he said, uh, the only thing he could do is just blurt it out. Mark killed himself. And it just hit me. It was like a punch in the face. 
And uh, my buddy on the other end of the line, he just started weeping. He started crying because this was a great friend that we both knew very well that had just taken his own life and we're never going to see him again, you know? And, um, and so there's that ripple effect. So not only was Mark's immediate family dramatically affected by his suicide, but so were his extended family, you know, his brothers from the teams. We are going to dearly miss Mark. And these are some of the things that people just don't, you know, and when you're in that dark place, I think it's hard to think about that. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about, gee, how's my wife going to feel if I don't come back from, you know, from paddling out, out to sea? Or, you know, if I go into the garage and yeah. just shoot myself. And that's you don't the think about that. Encapsulation. It's so overwhelming, right? That's the part that you don't, Very. no one tells you about that because you don't, you, you stop all the rationale. Look, taking your own life is irrational. That's the bottom line. So when you do, or when someone does, not not when you do, when someone takes their own life, it is a, a unaware thing that they're doing, right? It's all the other rationalization and the thought and the the working through what will, who will this affect, who will be hurt, could I get this together? Could I work through it? Should I go see someone? None of those questions are on the table. No. None of them. No. It's just pain, and it's it's despair right that's what brings them to that point you just and the the reality despair is is the word that you just nailed on the head that that is tough as nails and emotionally in tune with yourself that's a possibility and i think that's what people need to understand is you're you can be a bad dude a bad dude and go see a therapist those aren't mutually exclusive things it's probably going to make you better and i think that (laughs) totally it's it it will. You'll be a more. You'll you have a higher EQ. Like you will be more emotionally available for other people. Yeah. You can be physically tough. You can be hard to kill. You can be whatever you want. The laundry list of things to go on that make you a badass, man or woman. It doesn't matter. You can do that and seek help. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're a, you're a living, breathing, awesome example of that of someone who is tough. You. You got your workout done this morning because you knew you were going to do the podcast. It was already done. First thing you did. That's a badass thing to do. (laughs) Also in touch with your feelings. Also trying to help other people that might be going through this kind of stuff. And those aren't different worlds. And that's okay. And I, you know, so somebody asked me really, um, why did I write the book? What was my why behind it? Because it's it's not one of these tell all you know, books about, you know, about being a SEAL. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a book about drawing parallels between, you know, my, my episodes of not being a decent human being, you know, being a a douchebag out there or, you know, stories about, you know, my friend that really went through the toughest time of his life and what would have been the end for so many other people. But, you know, he persevered and continued the rise to the top of his game as a senior officer in our community and commanded the most, you know, the best command that any SEAL officer would ever want to command at that level. And he got through it. Not to say that he's still not experiencing dark days, 
Um, you know, he's also lost men in combat. And he was that guy that, you know, ultimately responsible for sending these guys on that mission. Um, he was the commanding officer when extortion 17 went down. And, you know, I can't even come close to imagining having, you know, those, those 30 lives on my mind that, uh, you know, that have gone and, um, you know, but he's, you know, and I hope, I hope like hell that he's still getting through it all. And that's kind of, I guess, you know, what's behind my book and my why of writing the book was all these different experiences that all these people had, you know, that you can get through this, you can push through and get to the other side healthier, hopefully, and more empathetic and being able to understand other people's views and your own self, understanding your own self better in order to be a better human being. Well, Steve, I, I think that's a phenomenal closing thought. And we have set the record for the longest podcast that I've done yet at two hours and 26 minutes. So I, I told you this stuff flies by. It's so enjoyable. Um, again, I appreciate, you know, thank you for your service. Thank you for the time, taking the time out of your schedule to be here. I'd love to include in the show notes any kind of links to um, like any kind of help that the veterans can seek therapy options, uh, maybe some that are non-traditional, others that are traditional. So in the show notes, there will be a list of those that um, if someone's listening right now and they are looking for someone to talk to, we got some options for you. So thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate it. Abe, I appreciate it as well, you having me on your show. Thank you.